Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're good to go. David Reynolds, welcome. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure, Oliver. Well, I, I was, um, as soon as I was made aware of this book, as it dropped in my inbox, I was very keen to speak to you. And, you know, this, you're obviously a very distinguished historian, but also you're writing about a man who, I mean, there have been a lot of books written about him. And I, I wanted to ask you first off, I was just so, so interested to, to get your view, you as a professional, cold hearted historian who won't allow sort of emotion to get in the way. I wondered just to start with what your view of Winston Churchill is, because it's, you know, he 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 does inspire all sorts of emotions that many people uh, disapprove of him. Many people, probably a lot more people admire him. And I just wondered what, where you, where you are on that scale. I started being aware of Churchill very young. My parents, I, I grew up in, in Kent. My parents were uh, very steadfastly uh, working class sort of, or middle-class, lower middle-class Tories. Uh who'd lived through the war. Uh, He was the great leader. We went to Chartwell soon after it was opened in the 60s. Uh, And in a way, it's, uh, I suppose I think of myself as a kind of post-war child, uh, always living within the shadow of that war and what it did for the country. And so one is always living in Churchill's shadow. what I have come to feel more and more is that uh, the uh, what I'm interested in as a historian, and I, I hope I'm not quite as cold-hearted as you you say, but anyway. Um, uh, Sorry, I realised that um, was probably not quite the right thing to say. I meant to. I, be need, more... I need to tick you off about that, you know. So anyway, um, uh, but 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 what I'm struck by is really the. Um, what I want is to bring out the fact that the three-dimensional sense of Churchill, um, if we stick him up on a wall as an icon, I think over time he becomes less and less persuasive and plausible, particularly to younger people. Uh, if we understand that this was a man who lived life to the full uh, in all sorts of ways and was a prodigious talent, also, because he dared to do everything, he got things wrong. He lived with his mistakes. He got on with it. 
And understanding him as a three-dimensional human being, I think, makes him into a greater and more striking figure than if we simply put him up on the wall and say, Winston. Yes. Well, you say he packed a lot in, and, and it's so interesting, your book, which you look at figures that influenced him throughout his life. These figures are... I guess in inverted commas, they're great people, but, you know, great uh, Hitler and Mussolini mm. are in there, obviously had a great impact on on um, the 20th century. So, but just for his young life, he was so determined early on, it, that surely was an influence of his ancestor, mm. another great man, the Duke of Marlborough, presumably that knowledge, you know, knowing he came from such a, a a family with so you know obviously his father randolph the politician but his but his ancestor um john churchill do you think mm. that's what drove him to, for these sort of certainly military exploits when he well certainly a... this is a man who was born in blenheim palace which after all is the uh, is the um, the memorial that uh, the, from a grateful nation to uh, john churchill for his exploits uh, in the uh, you know winning the battle of Blenheim and so on against Louis the Fourteenth, so Churchill, if you like, was born great uh, in that sense. He was born into greatness, but I think he was also haunted by the fact that his father was a younger son of the the Marlborough dynasty, uh, and had had this meteoric uh, career, uh, burning out very rapidly in eighteen eighty six. Chancellor of the Exchequer for five months, uh, taking on the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, being roundly defeated and then disappearing into oblivion, uh, into the darkness and dying within another decade uh, in a really sad decline and decrepitude, which Winston understood was probably due to syphilis. This is not, as it were, a, a an encouraging uh, sense of one's uh, ancestry, uh, great pedigree, but immediate circumstances pretty grim. And Churchill, uh, Winston Churchill, grew up with the feeling that he probably would die young, like his father in the forties, in his forties, and he was determined to make his mark on history before his history, if you like, wiped him out. So you have that absolutely frantic period in the 1890s where he is just rushing around the world into the hot spots uh, as a, a young officer come re reporter, uh, northwest frontier of India, Sudan, then in the Boer War in South Africa, escaped prisoner of war from the Boers, all of it written up in newspaper dispatches, all of it uh, written up in memoirs that he published, best-selling books. So this is a young man who's just going at a frantic pace and then decides at the beginning of the century, that new century, that what he wants to do is really make his mark in politics. He's using that military career, the journalism, to give him a name, make him attractive, so uh, a Tory, the Tory party will pick him up for some uh, seat and he can get into the House of Commons. So it's an incredible start and um, and one which testifies, I think, to this just passion for greatness, uh, this feeling that that there's no afterlife. He doesn't believe that there's an afterlife. He's not a particularly devout Christian. Uh, the only way you're going to be remembered is not in heaven. It's in whatever memorials you leave behind. And that means great deeds. 
but also great words. He's convinced that the only thing that lasts forever are words. And that's why he is so keen to make sure that at every stage of his life, he writes the story of it, the history of it. Well, yes. What was it that John Kennedy said about him? He he um, mobilized the English sentence and sent it into battle. Language, yes, yes, Language. or Ed Murrow. But um, yes, right. but certainly, I mean, it was used by various people. But um, yes, he had a power over language. And of course, the other thing that's striking about Churchill is really, you know, that I mean, if uh, if I'm talking to an American audience, uh, I would say, you know, he's basically a high school dropout. Um, you know, he really doesn't make it at school. Uh, he's not. Happy he does, to... uh, sorry to interrupt you, David, please forgive me. But he he does, you know, he he, he wins fencing competitions. He wins a prize for an, um, I think, a, an essay on, I forget exactly what. Um, he's not a complete failure at the school. No, he? he's not. But he is, he's not somebody who goes the standard route of an English politician from school to, you know, read greats at Oxford and so on. And frankly, I think it's to his benefit and and ours that he did not have a, a classical education. He was he was an endlessly curious. He had an endlessly curious mind, phenomenal memory, learning huge tracts of poetry by heart, uh, and inquisitive about everything. Um, I mean, he's a kind of techie, a techie nerd. He's fascinated by things that don't fit into a kind of formal structure of, of science, but he's got a great gift for going for the important things in technology and science. He's fascinated by writers like H.G. Wells. And I think that, you know, the way that, for example, he picks up the importance of radar, he understands the, some of the issues to do with the atomic bomb. This, this is, this is, a reflection of that curious mind, that inquisitive mind, that roving mind, which doesn't fit into any any clear box and certainly absolutely hates <laughs> learning Greek and Latin and mathematics. Well, I suppose there's there's hope for some of us then. Um, yeah, well, I think we can agree on that. I've managed to get through so far without uh, any really, really good understanding of uh, of mass, don't tell Mr. Sunak about that. But uh, you know, it's. Uh, uh, but he is here. I mean, he is a virtuoso person. Coming back to your question about leaders, I think part of why I'm writing this book, uh, Mirrors of Greatness: Winston Churchill and the Leaders Who Shaped Him, is this feeling that many of us have. You look at him and you think, "Wow, he's a complete one-off. This is a, just an incredible genius." And many of his contemporaries said this. Many of the people who, you know, may not completely admire him, they say, you know, there's a stroke of genius here in this man. Uh, it's very unusual. Um, and so you tend to build up this sense of a, a solitary figure, a self-made person. What I'm trying to say in the book is, yes, all that's true. And there's plenty of examples of that in the book. The, the skill he has, uh, the capacities he has. But like any leader, uh, the context also matters. And the context is shaped by other leaders and what they do. So some of these people would not be regarded as great, uh, above all, from Churchill's perspective, from our, our perspective, Adolf Hitler. But I would argue in the book, and do, and it's the central part of the book, that 
uh, Churchill's finest hour, 1940, is only made possible by Adolf Hitler. It's because of the collapse of France, because of the way German strategy changed in 1940, and uh, they ran around the British and French armies in Belgium, race for the channel, France surrenders, that Churchill has his opportunity to do something uh, uh, really important. So the, the moment he gets the job that he's been working for for 65 years, longing to become prime minister, within a week, he's got to improvise because France has surrendered. France was the great anchor of the First World War, four years, uh, British front, British French forces on the Western Front. France has gone in a week or so once the fighting starts. Churchill's now got to think of something different and rising to the occasion... He is forced to improvise for the rest of his premiership, really. And that, for me, is one of the marks of greatness in a leader. It's that uh, a capacity to have a clear plan, but to say, oh, it's all gone to pieces. What are we going to do now? And that's what he does remarkably in 1940. And it's that gift for improvisation in 4041 that I think is particularly striking. But... But May 1940, I mean, prior to May 1940, Churchill would not have been viewed necessarily as a, a great man by no. by most of the British public. I mean, he was quite a divisive figure, wasn't he, in many ways? Because yeah, of, Marmite you know, character, absolutely. You liked him or you hated him or you, or you just you know, thought he was uh, irresponsible, really. Um, so if you wish to be a critic, this is a man who is constantly... Um, looking for opportunities to uh, show himself off. Uh, for example, one that is not forgotten is that he's first Lord of the Admiralty at the beginning of the war, does First World War, does something very significant, makes sure that the British Expeditionary France force can be transported to France, ready to fight the Germans. That's no logistical simplicity. Um, but then when the Germans make it to Antwerp and it looks like that city is going to surrender, the blood goes to his head. He just uh, he says it's almost like the, the soldier, that young soldier, the, you know, of, of the northwest front. He is back there again. He races across the channel. He takes command of a naval detachment in, in Antwerp. Uh, uh, you know, in order to, to help stop them. And the cabinet, this is a cabinet minister doing this. And uh, imagine Grant uh, and with the prime minister just yeah. says, you know, what is going on here? I mean, people just said this is this is crazy. Um, now, that was the sort of thing that uh, was said about him again. Um, again, this was, uh, you know, a man with no sense of judgment, lots of ability, but no sense uh, of 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 judgment to be able to control these 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 impetuous uh, moments that seem to be the um you know sort of he seems to be addicted to but early on he talks about again employing language wanting to use language i think it's the wild extravagance of language he, he says which i was thinking as reading that i mean that that's sort of keen to be almost a populist he's he's desperate to by using this kind of language attract as much attention as possible and therefore get as much um, yes. support as possible yes he's uh i mean his his understanding of rhetoric political rhetoric is you have to be eye-catching you have to catch the attention the ear and the eye of of people uh i say ear and eye because in those days 
political speeches, particularly in the House of Commons, were widely reported in newspapers. I mean, that's not something that happens nowadays, but uh, in, in the same way, perhaps party conferences or something like that. But he wrote for that kind of audience. And that's part of why he mastered a soundbite uh, so well. Um, and we often think of him in terms of the sound bites, you know, fight them on the beaches, fight them on the landing grounds, all the rest of it. Uh, what is striking about his speeches, and I found reading a lot of them again, writing this book, is how much hard work goes into those things. The The power of those speeches is, uh, it, yes, there's, there's moments of humour. He alternates between the serious and the jocular. But he also develops an argument, an intellectual argument in these these speeches, which carry the audience along. Um, this is uh, particularly in some of the great wartime speeches in the Second World War. He's he's explaining to ordinary people on the wireless, on the radio, where we are now in terms of the war. So when, uh, for example, Hitler invades Russia in, in June 41, he talks about the fourth climactric, the fourth climactric, and he goes back and he says, we've had this one, first, second, third. This is the fourth climactric. This is another turning point. And this ability to interpret contemporary history for a wider audience is part of his power as a, a speaker. So that, um, the, again, this is where I, I, I think it's important to dig deeper. Yes, master of the soundbite. Yes, you know, with an eye to what looks striking, you know, the cigar stuck in his uh, teeth, uh, funny hats on and things like that. But also a real intellectual power in those speeches, which is something, uh, well, inconceivable nowadays. Yes. Um, if we throughout the 1930s, he's he's known now certainly for his um, his uh, opposition to appeasement. But he also makes a few. I mean, and this links to one of the the great figures in the book, um, Gandhi. And he makes a few. He takes a few political positions that, I mean, ha don't look good now. Mm. Um, uh, certainly around India and his and and some of his quotes about Gandhi are less than flattering mm. downright insulting do you think that he i mean he was an imperialist obviously this is this is something he believed in very strongly um do you think that gets rather forgotten when we look at churchill today we we look at the sound bites mm. um when he talks about people like gandhi and therefore he he we just he's a sort of an anachronistic figure that we we sort of almost some people just dismiss as a result of, of that well thing. he is he is a man of the empire and of course his uh early military career took him to india he he saw the british empire in india as integral to britain's role as a world power uh and uh Andrew Roberts, a biographer of, of, of Churchill, says rightly, I think, you know, Hitler and Gandhi are bracketed together by Churchill as the greatest threats to the British Empire. Um, uh, what was uh, striking in the case of, 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 of Gandhi is that, I mean, Churchill's 
anger, his vehemence about Gandhi, you know, the the half-naked fakir striding up the steps of the viceregal palace to parley on equal terms with the representative of the king emperor. Um, the vitriol there is not just that this is a man who is questioning the British Empire, but he's doing it in ways which question the Churchill's basic assumptions about manhood, masculinity, half-naked fakir, dressed almost as a woman with a loincloth, advocating things like spinning as the future for the country. This is not what a, a red-blooded male should be doing. Absolutely not somebody who is a citizen of the British Empire, a subject to the British Empire, where, in Churchill's view, what the empire is doing is bringing people from a level of primitiveness to a level of civilization. So Gandhi, as a, a, a young man at training at the Inns of Court in London, in, uh, in the best possible British dress, that's the way that uh, a person from India should be going. Then taking it all off and just dressing in this feminine way, this is degradation as far as Churchill's concerned. So these are really, Gandhi gets to him in some very, very basic ways uh, in terms of the challenges to what Britain, empire and uh, manhood should be. But the most frustrating thing for Churchill is that Gandhi's notion of passive resistance is one that cannot be dealt with by force. And ultimately, Churchill as a soldier assumes that it's the mailed fist, uh, whether it's out there in the open or not, that's going to get cooperation, cow people and so on. And it doesn't work with somebody mobilizing millions of people through his uh, his his power and his calling for uh, a passive uh, resistance and, and protest. So Gandhi is is what somebody who really gets under Churchill's skin in in the deepest possible ways, and it illustrates in a way. I mean, Gandhi is naive about Hitler, all the rest of it, but it illustrates a different conception of greatness. There are things about Gandhi that would we would say now, uh, you know, are marks of greatness. Uh, Churchill would never have ascribed that that uh, uh, the adjective great to to Gandhi. On the contrary, I mean he's never reconciled. Even after Gandhi's assassination, no. there are no kind words, are there? No, there are no kind words and no kind words in the memoirs. No, this is um, you know this is a man who really is uh, is is written off completely. Yeah. Now, just drilling into that as well a little bit more. Uh, often Churchill is dismissed today as. I mean, it's on the stat. It was on the statue during protests. Is Churchill was a racist, um, which, when one looks at some of the language um, in the interwar period, then it's difficult not to agree. But is it is that rather a regressive way of looking at Churchill? Because it, we're using obviously today's language, today's mm -hmm. values in in looking back at this figure who was a man of the late nineteenth century. Yes. Um, and Churchill, it's worth remembering the, the, the notorious massacre at Amritsar in 1919, uh, British troops firing on a, a crowd of protesters, unarmed protesters. Um, Churchill is who speaks out vehemently against this in the House of Commons, the act, the, the use, the, 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 the use of force. He says this is not what Britain and the empire are about. Um, 
uh, he's somebody who uh, uh, condemns that kind of thing. Uh, when when we talk about uh, you know Churchill as a, a Victorian, the man of his time, it's interesting to compare him with another Victorian uh, born uh, a few years later, Clement Attlee. Um, Attlee, uh, the Labour Prime Minister that follows Churchill after the Second World War, um, Attlee, uh, somebody who uh, comes from a comfortable family, a legal family, grows up in Putney, his father's a solicitor, they have, um, you know, gardeners and maids and things like that. Um, Attlee is profoundly changed by his experiences at uh, a boys' club run by his old school, Halebury, in the East End of London, Limehouse, and seeing what that can do for young men with no advantages, no education, but helping them to learn skills, helping them to train, get fit, and so on. Uh, Attlee, that is what makes Attlee a socialist. Um, Attlee also knows uh, a good deal about India because in the 19, late 1920s, he goes on a couple of government expeditions or government investigations to India. And Attlee's view very clearly is that the empire is coming to an end. We have to move on or we have to give to the Indians what we have given already to the Australians, the New Zealanders, the Canadians, what was then called dominion status, self-government. We've got to prepare them for that uh, future course. And that's something for Churchill, it's an anathema, but actually a different kind of Victorian is saying, we need to move on. Actually is not going belly up and saying, you know, uh, walk all over us. He is, after all, the man who um, uh, uh, is makes Britain the third nuclear power in the 1940s. He's quite convinced Britain has to be a world power. It has to have a bomb. He wants British influence globally to continue. He's just saying empire is not the way to do it. So what you have there are two Victorians, Attlee and Churchill, but they see the world and they see the empire in different ways. And I think that's an interesting way to think about Churchill and race and empire. And one which is, if you like, true to the context of the time and is not applying our own retrospective wisdom from the 21st century. Churchill, Churchill's relationship with Attlee then, because they, I mean, he described Attlee as a, a sheep in sheep's clothing, didn't he? And the the language in the 1945 general election about, you know, the, the I think mentions the Gestapo if 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 Labour gets in. Mm -hmm. So so I wondered if if that's the relationship between the two, you know, they'd had a, a successful um, war together. Was it was it ever? I, I guess close is the sort of wrong sort of question, but did they did they have a mutual respect? I think I think they did. Um, uh, I mean, Churchill has a nice line about Attlee. He said um, uh, at one point, he says um, he is an admirable character, but not one with whom it is agreeable to dine. Uh, and dining with somebody is a mark of of, of Churchill's approval. Um, uh, admirable character, 
uh, Churchill appreciated and respected the fact that Attlee uh, was a very loyal deputy prime minister during the Second World War, uh, doing a lot of the home front stuff that Churchill didn't have time for because he was flying around the world and dealing with um, global problems and conflicts and so on. Um, and Attlee also was somebody who was not afraid to tell Churchill when he actually thought he was doing something wrong, in particular when he was, for example, uh, you know, not reading the papers properly and documents towards the end of the war. Churchill was really exhausted by 1945. I mean, you think of what he'd been doing since 1940. It was killing pace. Uh, and Attlee said, you can't just come into these meetings and um, and just you know, pontificate or uh, or read the papers in the middle of the meeting. People have spent time preparing and all the rest of it. Uh, and you can't be rude to your staff and think, I mean, he's quite happy to do this sort of thing, tick them off, tick Churchill off. Um, uh, but so he was a, a, a wise advisor, a helpful advisor. Um, but Ackley also had his own agenda. So he watched Churchill's back, if you like, but to some extent behind Churchill's back, he was advancing what David Markin, the historian and MP, as former MPs, called Britain's war socialism during the Second World War. In other words, the, the way that the government had to take control over so many areas of British life during the Second World War paved the way for the kind of things that the Labour government was trying to do after the war continuing that kind of socialism in a different way. And so Attlee was playing a, a, a clever game, but not a disloyal game. Churchill knew what he was doing. And that speech that he gave in the election campaign of 1945 about Labour probably needing a kind of Gestapo um, was a throwaway line uh, by a tired man or one who didn't think about it uh, particularly. His family were horrified that he'd said this. And Attlee came back and he said, you know, uh, well, we now have uh, the, we've now had a, we've got an interesting contrast. We've had the leader, Mr. Winston Churchill, the leader who had taken us to victory through the war. And we're now hearing Mr. Winston Churchill, the leader of the Tory party, playing party politics. Um, so it was an interesting relationship um, and one that uh, actually was quite clear when Churchill died that this was our greatest prime minister in wartime. Uh, and the clear implication of that was that Churchill was not a great peacetime prime minister, uh, couldn't be in a way. Uh, his adrenaline got going during war. And Attlee, I think, was almost saying that the country needed the kind of leadership that Attlee and his colleagues gave after the Second World War to put the pieces together again, to move on again. Uh, a wartime prime minister didn't have a voice for the, the post-war situation. And it's striking that, for example, his uh, Churchill's wife, Clementine, always wished that he had re retired in 1945 when he lost that election. You know, go out uh, acknowledged as a great leader uh, rather than go on to what was not a particularly happy and successful second premiership from 1951 to 55. Well, you've mentioned Clementine there and, and I'm glad you did because the final chapter in the book is 
is very interesting. She was certainly someone, I guess, like Atley, who would admonish yeah. Winston should he overstep the boundaries of, of of proper discourse in in cabinet meetings and things, didn't she? Well, or just be unwise or whatever. So yes, in all sorts of ways. I I call her, you know, his most devoted critic. I mean, she was devoted to him, but she didn't. That meant that she would would tell him truth to power if if it was necessary. Uh, I mean, she, she, I think there's many ways in which you'd have to say that his greatness owed significantly to her presence around him. Um, so this is a relationship that, um, uh, you know, they are, when they meet in 1908, they, um, they are immediately affected by each other. Um, uh, it seems to have been for both of them, uh, 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 attraction of personalities, also a genuine sort of almost physical attraction as well, which hadn't happened in Winston's life in, in quite the same way before. Um, uh, uh, she had no doubt when she married him that this was going to be, as she said, her life's work. This was not an easy man. This would not be an easy relationship. But she believed in his destiny. She uh, was willing to make sacrifices. Remember, this is a woman who's a, a very keen suffragette uh, at the time, uh, who could have gone and wanted part of her wanted to go to university. She was a blue stocking. Her mother, you know, got rid of that idea and made sure she went into society. But you know, there were a lot of things about Clementine that were not realised through the uh, the relationship. But what she did was to be there however exhausting it was, to deal with his needs. This is not a man particularly domesticated or anything like that. Um, uh, and then whenever there was an opportunity, she would go away and have some kind of rescue. She was absolutely emotionally exhausted. She was quite highly strung. Um, so you can see the sacrifices she made. But what's interesting about the relationship is that it's also clear that the position that he got into in the First World War and the Second World War gave her the opportunity to do some things in the way of leadership, which would never have happened otherwise. So she in the First World War, she's running canteens for munitions workers, making sure that the women who are recruited into the munitions factories at least get a square meal at the middle of the day at lunch before they finish their job and then, of course, go home and pick up all the pieces at home you know, that they've got to do. A Second World War, her great achievement is the the um, aid to Russia uh, program, uh, works with the British, the Russian ambassador's wife, uh, providing uh, medical supplies and humanitarian aid to, to Russia, particularly rebuilding hospitals and uh, that have been destroyed during the war. Uh, and this speaks also to her what he would have called pinko sentiments that she's you know she's she's a liberal uh of a, of a distinctly left persuasion uh and she is very unhappy that the russians appear to be doing all the fighting between 1941 and 44 between the opening of operation barbarossa the invasion of russia and d-day uh they're bleeding for us what can we do for it and this is at least some way of saying thank you and a highlight of her life is that she does a tour of Russia in the Soviet Union in the, the, the spring of 1945, going to these places. And um, and she's entertained by Stalin, by Molotov, 
just at the same time that Churchill is falling out with them over the future of post-war Europe. It's a very strange situation. His wife is there, uh, you know, <laughs> on VE Day uh, out in the Soviet Union. Um, and she comes home and there's this wonderful line that she said, you know, she comes back with such warm feelings about the Russian people and also at the same time, a new awareness of how sinister their government is. Uh, it's lines that you could update to the present day just as well. So, so Clementine is is somebody who who is there to uh, does a play a significant part to help make Winston great. But what's interesting is that in the process, that marriage gives her the opportunity to become a leader and a great figure in ways that she would never have done if she'd you know, just stayed as a suffragette and uh, and and gone off to uh, Newnham College, Cambridge or something like that, you know. And, and then so it very much sounds like she was influential for his his great speech, the Iron Curtain speech in, in Missouri then. Would she have had an influence on that? Well, um, not not so much so. But of course, the Iron Curtain speech, you know, you, we use that title. But Churchill's title was the sinews of peace, not Iron Curtain. He says the Iron an Iron Curtain is coming down across Eastern Europe. And she would have agreed with that. But what he is saying and pretty consistently saying in the 1940s is that what we need to do is deal with the Soviet Union, uh, negotiate with the Soviet Union, but from a position of strength. The Soviets will, you know, deride you uh, if you're if you seem weak. They take you seriously if you show strength. And what Churchill is doing, he's speaking as much to Americans as he is to the to the Soviets, because what he's trying to say to the Americans is don't let the wartime alliance slip away. We need you. Europe needs you. The world needs you to not turn away from uh, back to isolationism, but to support a firm line uh, with the Soviet Union. And the point about negotiation is that Churchill believes that he personally has a particular rapport with Stalin, the leader, that despite all his detestation of Bolshevism, uh, Churchill believes that man to man, he has forged a wartime relationship with Stalin, which could help to ameliorate the uh, the tensions, the emerging Cold War. So it's uh, that grows out of his experience of summit diplomacy, really, during the, the wartime period. But it's a very striking um, conviction he has uh, almost without um uh that almost without a break that when he got stalin's word on something stalin didn't break it i just wanted to ask you a little bit about contemporary events we've got obviously we're speaking at a time where um the middle east uh, israel palestine is is kicking off in a in a huge way um churchill of course in in 40, 48 when the mandate is is surrendered and and um Israel is is essentially formed. He's very much of the view, rather sort of uh, not taking the usual imperialist view. He's very much, why are we there? We should we should give it up. Um, it makes a, an appearance in your book, and I was just interested in that. He he obviously he wasn't 
he wasn't such an essential imperialist that Britain had to retain land as much as possible, was he? Well, I mean, he certainly, he, I mean, he feels that Attlee's government has got it all wrong, that they should be holding on in India and uh, that they're, you know, that that Palestine is not a significant part of the story as far as Britain's concerned. Uh, he is a supporter of the new state of Israel, uh, but he believes that Attlee's government has got the priorities wrong um, uh, geographically. Um, uh, I mean, all the way through, Churchill is a party politician as well, so that there is a const constant criticism of Attlee's government you know, for scuttle scuttling from one thing to another. Um, Churchill, if you think of this career, he benefited from the two periods he had in the wilderness, the political wilderness. So from 1929 to 1939, he's not in government at all. He's free to criticise the government of the day. And, uh, you know, criticism in a sense comes cheap because you don't have to pick up the pieces. So in the 30s, you know, he's critical of the uh, the government for trying to devolve power in India. He's critical that they don't rearm sufficiently against uh, Germany. And he's critical of Stanley Baldwin for not supporting Edward VIII over the abdication. Churchill, uh, in a way that is, you know, creates despair amongst his supporters, is just a kind of romantic uh, enthusiast for Edward VIII. Uh, in a way, it does him severe damage in the estimation of many people. So in the 1940s, he's back for after 45, he's back in that situation again. He can point the finger at anything the Atlee government does and say, you know, it's wrong, it's silly and so on. Um, uh, uh, and if you take the case of India, it's, it's not clear what he could have done uh, in those circumstances. Obviously, Atlee's transfer of power, so-called transfer of power, um, uh, uh, which breaks up the Indian Raj into two countries, India, and then these two wings of Pakistan, real mess, terrible carnage. Um, uh, Atlee uh, regrets the carnage, but he says this is not the position. Our position is not tenable. And he's right, because another way that we, I think, nowadays forget uh what happens in the world because we're so focused on finest hour in Britain in 1940-41 is that the Japanese conquests in uh, Asia and the Pacific in the winter of 41-2, Pearl Harbor, fall of Singapore, Hong Kong, the collapse of the Dutch East Indies. Uh, by February 42, the Japanese are bombing Darwin on the north coast of, of Australia. This is a huge change in the balance of power in Asia, comparable to the turnaround that Hitler's effected in Europe in 1940. And it knocks the plank, the, the you know, the, 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 the feet from under Britain's imperial power across Asia. It's it's now clear that the emperor has no clothes, certainly no ability to defend huge areas that it once controlled simply through bluff. Ackley knows that. He knows that uh, the position in India is untenable. And basically what you've got to do is get out with the least damage. The damage is far more than he wants, but he understands that. Churchill 
uh, can criticize uh, actually all he wants in the 40s. It's not clear that he could a, a, a conservative government could have done anything different. But so he benefits from his image. Our image of him benefits from the fact that in two crucial periods, he is the critic able to speak out and eloquently speak out about the government of the day. But what he would have done in those circumstances, I think, is is a different matter. So Churchill's this figure who will continue to have many books written about him. I just wondered what your view of, it's difficult to, to answer probably, but I wondered what your view, of, in, say in a hundred years time, there is a a, a, a a successor of yours at Cambridge University writing a book on on Churchill. Do, do you think the uh, the figures of, of Gandhi and Attlee and and Clementine will, will be as prominent in our view of him or... You know, it'll be May 1940 that will forever be um, the key. The key. Well, I, uh, I, I mean, anything I say now about what the views of people in a hundred years' time will be, I'm, I'm happy to do that because I'm completely free to do it, and I will not be around to, uh, to have to listen to the, the questions or doubts. Um, uh, what I'm trying to do in the book is really to use these other leaders who have their own sense of leadership to reveal more about leaders in general, as well as Churchill in particular. And uh, so, you know, I'm going to duck the question of how we would see it a hundred years time. But what I feel quite strongly is that those figures that come in towards the end of the book, uh, Atlee, um, uh, uh, Gandhi and Clementine, give us vantage points from our own day which offer different conceptions of greatness and ones that it's worth bearing in mind because what I would like to do is to keep pushing people to say think three-dimensionally about Churchill. To be a great leader you don't have to be, you can't be perfect. You can't be right all the time. What I feel reading about Churchill, and I think about it, you know, to, in the present day, in terms of some of the political leaders we have now, is just the relentless pressure on anybody holding a public office. Uh, you know, the need to always be able to give a statement about the you know, issues of the day, um, to uh, to be able to cover all sorts of things, to run around the clock everywhere, to deal with your, if you're a politician, constituency, go home in the evening and pick up the pieces with the family and, you know, what your spouse saying, where the hell have you been? Look at all the problems. You know, this is asking a huge amount. Churchill was lucky that he had Clementine. Uh, the damage to his children was huge. None of them uh, found it easy, apart from Mary Soames, the, the youngest uh, of the surviving children. To be a Churchill, it was just a huge burden, really. Or, I mean, it was a, a privilege, but also it destroyed their lives. Um, so we should be aware of what the cost of leadership is on any politician. And we should be aware, uh, uh, you know, we shouldn't expect Churchill to always have been right, uh, always to have been, um, you know, behaved in, in ways that we would approve of today. And also that we shouldn't expect Churchill to be, you know, all things to all men and women in perpetuity. 
this is a figure that is bound to be a major uh, uh, major guide guidepost, if you like, in in as we think about our history. But let's think about him historically. Let's think about him realistically. And measuring against some of the other leaders of his day is, I think, a useful way to do that. Great stuff. Well, David, this has been fantastic. Thank you. And please forgive me for describing you as cold hearted. I've realized how what a horrible thing to say. <laughs> well, I, I try. I try to I try to. I mean, I think that you need to have an analytical brain with this. But I certainly think and I've tried to say that at the very end, that, um, uh, you know, if, if you take the American expression, I'm I'm I do not want to be just a Monday morning quarterback. In other words, you know, an armchair critic who says, why can't this politician or that politician do all the you know, well, I mean, Churchill was an incredible figure, but give him allow him the humanity, which is really evident if you read about it and and the humanity that brings with it great achievements and also significant flaws. Yes, that's three dimensional. Well, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. Reading reading some of the letters to his parents whilst at school are, are heartbreaking. And that really does show the humanity of the of the of the young Winston. Mm. But um, thank you very much. My pleasure, Oliver. Good to talk to you. Great.